Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's www.australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Chrissy Goldrick and this is Talking Australia, a podcast by Australian Geographic. Today I'm talking to Albert Wigan. Albert is a Newell Newell Indigenous Ranger and community leader in the Kimberley region of Australia. He successfully campaigned to prevent the establishment of a gas terminal at James Price Point and he's an outspoken advocate for the role that Aboriginal knowledge can play in land conservation. So I'm really thrilled to be talking to Albert Wigan today on this episode of Talking Australia. Welcome, Albert. Hello, and good morning, Christine. It's lovely to have you here in Sydney. Thank you. You've come a long way. Yeah, yeah but the tra- weather's actually beautiful, so <laughs> it almost feels like I'm on home if it wasn't for these massive skyscrapers. <laughs> and it's a bit smoky. It is very smoky. Yes, we've got some major bushfires in the north of the state. Some strong winds as well. Yeah, so, so yeah. it's a bit unusual at the moment. Oh, look, you know, back home there's bushfires and, and you know, it's, it's quite amazing how the weather is um, making me feel a bit like home. No, sure. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. So home is a place called Signet Bay. Yeah. Tell us about your home. Well, it's one of those, I guess, hidden secrets in Australia. Um, it's on the coast. It's a beautiful area. There's a, there was an pearl farm established about 100 years ago on that location, hence why it's called Signet Bay. But its, it's uh, history actually dates back to, uh, I think it was... 1644, um, and there was actually this, you know, obviously the name Signet came from a pirate ship that actually discovered the area, and William Dampier was actually a deckhand on that pirate ship called the Signet when they actually landed in Signet Bay. And so to the locals, it's known as Bodegrun. Oh, I like that, yes. And Bodegrun, it's always been called Bodegrun from the day one, but... I guess uh, hist- historical-wise, you know, it, it's quite significant in regards to Australia's history. And um, and then obviously I, I now live in a place called Beagle Bay, which is also rich of history because it was named after the HMAS Beagle that um, Charles Darwin was actually mm. using on his expedition wow. uh, through the Galapagos Islands. And so th- there's incredible history yeah. you know, around that area but um, unfortunately a lot of people don't necessarily learn about that history or get to experience or understand that history and it can be quite difficult to get access to that area because it's so remote but for me it's 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 paradise and for me it's it's probably the you know the the, the most incredible environment to live grow and learn um, and that's why I'm so passionate and I, and I speak very strongly about my passion in regards to my culture and my country, you know, or the country in general. And I, when I say country, I, you know, that's just our interpretation of the environment, right? Mm. And so 
you know, when we reflect on the environment, we generally refer to it as country because um, it's such a broad spectrum, you know, when we talk about the environment. And for indigenous people where I live, the, the culture and the relationship with the land is very much, you know, strong. And it hasn't been influenced by development, by population, you know, um, or even by industry. And I feel very privileged to, to have called that place my home and to continue to call that place my home. But with that, obviously, comes the responsibility to make sure that it gets preserved for the long term. And is it under pressure? Oh, definitely. I mean, in Western Australia, it, there's such a mining-orientated state, um, you know, and, and it has such a significant input into our national economy. And so it has a lot of influence and power, so to speak, industry in particular when it comes to w what the future of Western Australia is going to look like. And, you know, for, for Indigenous people, uh, I don't think our aspirations are necessarily on the cards as well. And so, you know, we've got to be extra vigilant and, and extra strong to try and advocate for, you know, the future we think is appropriate for not only ourselves as Indigenous people, but for everybody around Australia, because it's quite an amazing part of Australia, if not the world. Um, its extinction rates are very, very low. It, it has, you know, it, a lot of endemic species that are heavily threatened, like the Greater Bilby has really large population of wild populations of these sort of threatened species. And it's becoming one of the last remaining sanctuaries for these threatened species. Whether or not it's, it's it's uh, an instinctual thing that these animals are actually <laughs> congregating, but I think it's because of its remoteness and isolation mm. that, is, as that has been its saving grace. But there is a lot of prospect to develop that area. There is a, there's a, or there's a, a national agenda called the Northern Development you know, um, Project, and essentially what that is looking at is, is basically, uh, I guess, um, promoting agriculture and, and, and mining industry across the north to, to provide for, you know, the, the Asian market for the next sort of 50 years. And there's this incredible demand for food and, and resources from, from Asia, in particular China. And they're, they're, they're sort of the numbers we're looking at are quite <laughs> dramatic. They're incredible, you know, I mean, w things that we would consider to be, you know, a su sustainable trade for example, bush tucker, that, that is like the kakadu plum, mm -hmm. that, is, that is quite popular. Um, at, at its peak, we could probably, you know, in its, in its sort of natural form, at its peak, I think the supply and demand in the Kimberleys could reach a maximum of about 50 ton and annually. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's, that's just given the, the, the condition of, industry that it's under at the moment it's very mm. small it's still yes. growing but you know we've got a demand from china for 150 ton yeah and it's not and so, and so what, you know what and to meet a target like that for something like uh, the kakadu plum that means scaling it up to somewhere that it shouldn't really be going well it means altering its natural state yeah. really it, it means you know and as indigenous people we we rely on that seasonal relationship to capture and, and to capitalize mm. on on those resources when when they are you know ready for production if you want to call it that and so we very much rely on the wet season 
we very much rely on fire management in regards to, you know, obviously maintaining the health and integrity of those ecosystems that provide those resources. And, and for us as indigenous people, it's really important that we maintain the, the skills and the knowledge that have been passed on and, and try and integrate that with, with industry as it develops you know, and as it progresses and grows in our region, it's really important that if we're trying to develop sustainable management solutions and look at what's sustainable for the country as a whole, there's a lot to be learned from indigenous knowledge. Yeah. And there's a great tension between those two things, of course. Well, I think there's, you know, traditionally, for me, I don't understand why, because, you know, for me, I've worked, you know, with so many scientists and, and researchers throughout for the last sort of 20, 25 years of my life. And funny enough, you know, a lot of them recognize that traditional knowledge is the foundation of science. It's where science, you know, this whole curiosity and this whole perspective around observation and, you know, analyzing and, and you know, getting, I guess, deeper and deeper in regards to the knowledge around things started from a very simple foundation of knowledge. And I tend to connect to people on that level. I try to connect to people on that level that we are all indigenous from somewhere. Mm. It's in our DNA, yeah. you know what I mean? And so hopefully that puts things into perspective for people to appreciate that, you know, once upon a time throughout their history, um, their ancestors were indigenous and they had this wonderful, unique relationship with the land that was, you know, reflective of what is sustainable and, and what is appropriate. And um, and I think rather than trying to find the solutions in, in, in other people, I'm really trying to encourage people to find those solutions from themselves and, and their own journey. We've lost in the in sort of modern society, we've sort of lost that connection, not just to country, but also really to family and to yeah. heritage. And oh, yeah, exactly. And we have so much to learn from Australia's first peoples if we, if we, just, if we were just to listen. I think it's more about what we were taught. I mean, you know, I, I guess knowledge is power, you know, and if you can, you know, and I think the more and more the world grows, the more and more we are able to understand what knowledge is useful and, and the purposes of it and how we actually interpret that knowledge for whatever reasons. And science has just been, a, a, I guess, a, a, just a different interpretation of knowledge, mm. you know what I mean? And And I think fundamentally it it stands for the same thing you know what i mean it's all based around understanding something and you know trying to obviously appreciate you know the 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 things that are around us and how it affect us but i really don't see a lot of difference between science and, and indigenous knowledge only for the f only difference i see is how that knowledge is being used and for what purposes mm. indigenous knowledge was always use for the preservation of life mm. and preservation of land mm. and it's based on those fundamental principles unfortunately modern science is now a way of us compromising that mm. and justifying how why we need to compromise that fundamental principle and i think the the writings on the wall that science is is obviously the interpretation of that knowledge from a scientific viewpoint can not only be benefit, but it also has negative impacts as well. Mm. 
And what, Especially when it caters for things like industry. Yeah. You know? In terms of the Kimberley itself, what? how do you see the future of the Kimberley? Do you think this, with the tension between these oh. needs, do you think that... Um, it's, it's, quite, it's quite scary, you know, to be honest. I, and, I, and I speak honestly here. It's, as an Indigenous person, it is insanely scary. Because at times it feels as if we're closer to China than we are to the East Coast. Mm. We have so much investment. We have so much foreign investment in our state, especially in our resource-rich regions like the Pilbara. And now the Kimberleys. And so the Pilbara region has been supplying, you know, resources and exporting, you know, major resources from the mining sector for the last 50 years. Mm. And they've really held our economy, you know, and... Um, and, you know, the reasons why we never went through a global financial crisis is, was heavily due to the, to the, you know, profits that were mm. made from exporting those resources. But the, the Pilbara is, is almost out of resources. And mm. so there's this, there's this perspective that the Kimberleys has it's to be the next, next. region to mm. obviously exploit. And so what I'm trying to do is, is, is learn from the mistakes of that, you know, learn and... and, and Obviously, appreciate that for what it is, but try and come back w with with alternatives, right? Mm. And for me, there are alternative industries um, besides mining or extraction, especially in the Kimberleys, because it has a lot of natural resources, not only mining resources, but water, you know, mm. veg fruit, food, medicines, all of these sort of resources that... Um, and for me, you know, it, that's a space that I want to focus on. That's, a, that's the space that I truly want to promote to the world. And so tell us a little bit more about those things, that those alternatives yeah, so to the extractive I guess industries. For bush tucker, you know, I mean, out of the 3,500 varieties of bush tucker and, and bush plants that are out there, there's only 20 on the commercial market. Mm. And they're used for various reasons, whether it's medicinal purposes, whether it's skin care or cosmetics, whether it's, you know, whether it's, just, you know, I, I believe the kakadu plum is used in the prawn industry as a preservative. Mm. And so it's right. probably, you know, and so there are incredible range of abilities that these resources have. And, and that's the benefit of science, right? Because science can actually analyze what, what usages, you know, what other usage mm. that these products can actually have. And so, you know, and we're only, t we're just cracking the surface it's, on that, you know, mm. when we look at the three and a half thousand varieties, there's only 20 on the market. And so the potential in that industry is incredible. Yeah. But what is needed to capitalize on that is the land and, yeah. and the resource and the integrity of the land. And, and a lot of that re relies on things like, you know, fire management and, and water and, and these sort of things. And so... Yeah, you know, we don't have a, you know, we, we haven't been impacted by agriculture as much. It's mainly pastoralism that's really altered the, the, the Kimberley landscape. Um, pastoralism in regards to sheep farming and then obviously cattle farming. We've got, you know, the most, we've got a lot of the largest cattle stations in mm. Australia, the, up in the Kimberleys. And, um, and is that expanding? Is that... Well, obviously, the demand for food from Asia yeah. is growing. And so, you know, that particular demand, I don't think, is going to end in the yeah. short term. It's only going to grow because, you know, that's, that's the real issue in the world is population, yeah. you know, more and, and, more and people. numbers. Yeah, more and more food You needed. know, and for me, you know, th th there are so many factors to be concerned about because we are isolated. 
there's a very small population and we have a lot of resources. So if you really consider where's the one sort of location the world's looking at when it comes to, you know, dire you know, sort of dire situation and, and things get really, really critical mm. in regards to, you know, China, especially with its population and its lack of resources. You know, it 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 sometimes, you know, paints, it scares you to the point where you think, oh, you know, national security crisis probably wouldn't be too far away because mm. as, as blessed as I feel, you know, and, and I truly am blessed to have what it is I have back home, you know, this incredible environment, this incredible culture, it's under immense pressure and and the future of that is is very much up in the air. Yeah. And, you know, we've got these really large-scale multinational agendas with long-term views on how to, I guess, alter that for the next 50 years. And, and I think for myself and, and passionate you know, people that come from that area, um, it, it's imperative that we stand up now and, and yeah. we try to promote alternative industries within that region before, you know, these multinational agendas change it forever. We'll take a quick break and be back in a moment. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. You're an articulate um, spokesperson for both for your people, but for the Kimberley. Um, is, is that where you came from? Is that where you were born? Yeah, I guess yes. it is where I was born. But, you know, I guess one thing a lot of people don't understand is it was actually my father that, that introduced a lot of industry into the Kimberleys because my father, because nice. we're a coastal um, group, our, 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 the Bardi people, we live on the coast and on the Kimberley coast in particular and my my father my grandfather and my father were heavily involved with the pearling industry and my dad was a skipper of a lugger pearling lugger in the early 60s and basically um he and you know he employed a, a gentleman by the name of Malcolm Douglas as ah, his deckhand yes, Malcolm mm. and so Malcolm Douglas was Cock originally his, his his deckhand at the time but in the uh, mid-70s, Malcolm suggested to my father that because there was a crocodile culling at that time, there was a reward for culling crocodiles. And so, interestingly, Malcolm suggested to my father to you know, do tours up and down the coast and, and patrol for crocodiles and harvest crocodiles along the coast. And it was there that Malcolm discovered the Kimberley Coast alongside my father. And it was my father that you know, brought him into some incredible hidden spots that a lot of indigenous people have known about, you know, but obviously the rest of the world didn't know about it. And it was there that Malcolm fell in love with the place and, and he sort mm. of saw the light and what he wanted to become and he became a passionate, you know, advocate for the Kimberleys purely because of, you know, the experience that my father had shown him and, and, and shared with him. And so, you know, it, there were other people that my father had worked with as well, you know, and introduced like Harry Butler and... 
and Les Hiddens as the Bush Tucker Man and, and Albie Mangles and these were quite you know prominent names in Australia and it was my father that actually introduced them to the Kimberleys. And, um, and did you meet them? Were you, were yeah, you yeah, I was then? a little guy. Right. I was very small when I met them all. And, yeah. and we're still very much, some of us, you know, Les Hiddens and, and, and Harry Butler and them, we're still very much close friends. Obviously, yeah. Malcolm's passed on, but, mm. you know, and even David Allmeadow as well. But, you know, these, these guys sort of inspired me at a very early age, you know, because I knew I wanted, I, I knew that my heart was with country, right? I knew mm. that's who I wanted to be, but I didn't. I didn't understand what were the opportunities to come, right? What was the sort of direction I had to sort of follow? And having people like those, you know, those individuals around me and working alongside my dad and, and pretty much interpreting what my dad was teaching them, but in a way that the world could understand, mm, mm -hmm. was really important for me. You know what I mean? Because it, it was basically where I, I began to appreciate that that's what I want to do. Mm, mm. And so from there you were... Uh you went to school in Perth, is that right? Private school. So from a small, isolated island, I mean, the, the population in our community was 170-odd people, but <laughs> we lived actually outside of the community on a small island called Leone Island. It was just my parents and I and, I was, and my siblings. And basically I was sent from that remote island to a private boys' school in Perth where there were over 2,000 non-Indigenous students and I was the only indigenous student, so goodness, you gracious. know, my my parents sort of, yeah, prepared me for challenges at a very early age. Yeah, and um, and was was that that was boarding school? So you went there and you was yeah. suddenly cast into the middle of this big city, <laughs> and all these city kids. How did you go? How was it for you? You know, for me, it's I, I was taught to always reflect, you know, and reflect on on the hardships that people have gone through for me to have these opportunities, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, as wonderful as the Kimberley is, is, there's a lot of dark history around it, especially in regards to the treatment of Aboriginal people. And, mm. and those Aboriginal people were my family. Those were my relatives. They, they were descendants of mine. And so I've always had a deep appreciation about who I am, you know, and, and, and how I came to be this person, not only from you know, n not only from an educational point of view, but from from a cultural point of view, mm. you know, and, and I'm really proud of the fact that my dad was, he was a very cultured person. He was semi-illiterate. He, he didn't go to school, mm. always lived out in the bush, but he was a hardworking man, you know, always worked with the pearling industry, like I'd said, and he developed a, a a name, obviously, because of his skills and his knowledge that he was able to bring to the industry. But my mum was a part of the assimilation process with the Catholic Church. Right. And so she grew up in a Catholic mission mm -hmm. called Beagle Bay. And um, and I guess she sort of grew up with, with the values of middle white Australia, if you like. And so, in a way, my upbringing was the best of both worlds. Mm. You know, I, I and my mum... Through her own journey, I guess, and through her relationship with my dad, had to learn all of that knowledge back, you know, had to sort of culture herself all over again. And it was through my ceremony, my initiation ceremony, and my growth and my transition from a boy into manhood is where she, she had the opportunity to connect back to her culture, you know, and learn about her culture all over again. And, 
And so I got to witness this as I grew up, and I got to experience this and use that as, as a reference to understand, you know, what I think is important and, and, and what I believe is important for everybody. Because in a sense, my mum, you know, half of me was raised as a middle-class white Australian. Mm. But from my dad's point of view, he was really steeped in his culture and law. And so, you know, for me, I didn't, I didn't think it was appropriate to have one or the other. I think if I wanted to be honest with myself, I have to create that bridge and, and walk, you know, and walk those sort of two worlds at the same time. And does that enable you to be able to sort of think about showing the way for people, non-Indigenous Australians, to really sort of think about their relationship with the land and, and, and really sort of teach uh, non-Indigenous Australians to sort of, I, I suppose, tap into something that... Perhaps we've, we've, well, we've I mean, lost. that's But it's an interesting concept, isn't it? You know, because I don't call, I don't necessarily call anybody non-Indigenous. You know, it's in our DNA. So our DNA actually traits back to our roots. Mm. We are all Indigenous from somewhere. And I understand through evolution, you know, there's been lots of changes. You know, and when I reflect on my culture as Indigenous people and I look at Australia's history, you know, and the only, you know, it's only sort of 200 years that we've sort of, been impacted <laughs> when I look at Europe, you know, mm. and I learn about, you know, the, the amount of times, you know, the Celts got invaded, you know, until, you know, the Europe is no longer what it was originally, mm. you know, and, and the rest of the world as well. And so a lot of other nations and indigenous tribes have been invaded and, and been conquered and been sort of, you know, and, and transformed. But there is a distinct baseline you know, genetic baseline that, that identifies where we all come from. And that's imprinted in our DNA as human beings. And for me, that's, that's the level I need, I want to connect to people on. And, and for me, I think that's, that's the level that I can speak honestly from. And, and I can only connect to people on that level. If I was to appreciate this disconnection that people are being... I guess, consumed to believe in, you know, this whole disconnection or, you know, of indigenous, non-indigenous, black, white, you know, like there's, mm. there's this concept of separation and disconnection. Um, it was heavily influenced by the way science interprets knowledge, you know, and the way we use that knowledge for our own benefit, whether it's for power or, or for whatever purpose. And, and for me, I think it's, it's, it's just bringing people back to those basic principles about who we are as human beings. Yeah. How do you see the future for um, for the, for the Kimberley, but for Australia in general, in terms of its? You it know, we have so scary. much to lose here. Well, there is. It's quite scary. I mean, I I, I tend to reflect. It, it's quite daunting. You know, I, I think about places like you know the, the Middle East, and I think about some of the most wealthiest individuals. You know, in the billionaires club, and none of them have the same outlook as any of us, right? They, they, you know, and, and I was, it was really interesting because I was watching this show on television and it was about these billionaires and, and pretty much what their hobbies are. And, and one of these guys, I think he was a, an emirate from, from one of the Arabs um, in the Middle East. And he was, <laughs> his hobby is to, you know, build these incredible hotels and, and mansions and, and sporting complexes that are, you know, multi-million dollar complexes but that's a hobby of his and so in order for him to fulfill his hobby 
you know, they're, they're, a lot of land has to be exploited mm -hmm. just for him to have his hobby fulfilled. I mean, th that's an incredible, you know, amount of power to have. And so we as a community are led to see that as an opportunity and led to see that as a benefit because it puts money into our wallets, it, it provides a employment, and all these sort of ticks and boxes, you know, and that, that justify why it should continue to happen. Mm. But eventually the, 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 the result, the end result is we have less resources, we have less like water, we have less land, and there's more, you know, more problems essentially, because more people mean more problems and less resources, well, it's inevitable that something, you know, there, a conflict has to occur at some point. And yeah, it is quite daunting, you know, when I consider myself this sort of free spirit, you know, living so purely and freely on his land, but knowing that there are billionaires, you know, in other countries that have already got long-term agendas for that land. Mm. And, and how do I try and... You know, I don't believe I can stop that. I can't influence it in a way to try and stop it. But I, I want to inspire young people to seriously consider, is that the future that they really want? And that's my hope, is in the young people. And we've seen so much of the young people in the last year really taking to the streets. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. such a groundswell of, of like passion and... And, and a need, a desire to actually do something to change their future. I mean, I've always been passionate about the environment, but I would not have the courage, you know, at the age of 12 or 13. It's taken such a long time for me to develop this courage to mm. speak passionately, you know, and to speak openly and, and, and publicly about what I think is, is appropriate and what I think is important. But when I see, you know, young yeah, like really young children marching in the numbers, you know, in the thousands, speaking so passionately about their entitlement, their right, which mm. is their future. Mm. Um, it's it's so powerful. Yeah. It's incredibly powerful, you know, especially as Aboriginal people, because, you know, as Indigenous people, we've always advocated for a country. We've always, you know, we've always tried to influence this nation in appreciating the country a lot more than what we do. And to see young people stand up, you know, at the age of nine, ten, walking down the streets, you know, talking very strongly to our leaders about, you know, the future they want um, is an incredibly inspiring thing for me. And it drives me and it, and it gives me, you know, I guess, hope that, mm. you know, not all things can necessarily be, you know, will be bad, you know, and and, and it actually you know, it creates this degree of optimism in my in my heart and in my mind that if once those young people become the leaders of this country, well then we could possibly see a different turnaround. You know, there is this whole sort of opportunity that the leadership we are currently under will, will turn around and become a lot more green conscious. Yeah. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that that inspires, I think it inspires hope in all of us yeah. who care in this way to see young people galvanising and, and they can often get a bad rap that they're sitting at home on their phones and, yeah. and you exactly. know, we're seeing something completely different. The, the rather story's than being changing. condemned for their action, you know, they should be, you know, supported and they should be encouraged and, and they should have everybody behind them. And I think they do have everybody, but it's really, at the end of the day, it... it 
it also reflects the type of leadership we have in this country. And if our leaders, our political leaders, you know, state and federal, um, condemn that sort of action, well then, uh, you know, you really got to understand, you got to consider is that the type of leadership that's good for you in the long term? And do you yourself have any political aspirations, Albert? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I've I learned from a very early age that the power of the word, you know, the, the words is a really incredibly powerful tool. And if you're able to, you know, use words and, and are you able to articulate and interpret what it is you're trying to, you know, what you're passionate about and what you think is important, well, then you use that for the benefit of everybody around you. And I think... For the time being, I'm I'm very much committed to the environment, and and I work with the environment. But I do have aspirations to have a political career in this space, and it's sort of more of an independent type role, political role. I'm not fully convinced that the major parties, you know, um, have the conviction to stand by important, you know, decisions. Um, but I think for me it's about networking and it's about developing a trust and a relationship with everybody across Australia and, and going through the hard yards, you know, and proving that I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not all talk, you know, I'm committed to this, mm -hmm. to this role, towards this vocation, if you like, you know, and, and, I, and I think for me that was a really important lesson is you can't expect, you know, people to, to appreciate what you are and who you are up front there's a lot of work that has to go on before that and you know and th this recognition through these awards are, are part of that journey and those are incredible sort of milestones for me in 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 believing that i'm on track mm. so yeah I, I really am grateful for for the acknowledgement that the geographic society awards have have honored me with and and i take that with a lot of heart but i also you know take that you know, with with a lot of conviction to to go back home and and to you know rally up the mob. Well, we're right behind you on that, Albert, and we really look forward to watching your career with great interest. And it's just been a wonderful experience meeting you uh, around these awards. And um, we are you know passionate about the protection of the Kimberley here at Australian Geographic. So you know we will certainly watch what's going on there with great interest. We continue to report on that beautiful part of the country, really the last bastion of pristine yeah. wilderness that we have left in Australia. We've got so much to lose and so a much lot, to fight yeah, for. So. Exactly, that's right. And so, you know, and, and, and the really important thing about it is, you know, we've been led to believe that even though we live on the same country, we're so far apart. But in reality, you know, we all stand strong on the same ground, you know, whether you're on the east or whether you're on the west. And I think as long as you're standing on that ground, we're all connected. Beautiful. It's a beautiful way to finish. Thank you so much for your time, Albert Wigan. It's just been a wonderful pleasure and an honour to spend time with you today. Thank you, Chrissy. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with Albert Wigan. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com. Or find us on Instagram. Australian Geographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash talking Australia, 
you'll find special offers for our listeners. So don't wait and go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.